again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your fourth and fifth week host, Stu Levitan. Very glad to have you with us today for a conversation with Madison native Anne Winkler Morey about her book, Allegiance to Winds and Waters, Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States. It's the narrative of her 12,087-mile bicycle trip she and her husband David took around the perimeter of the United States in 2011 and 12. Today is also the second and last opportunity during the Fall Pledge Drive for you to show your support for Madison Bookbeat. We hope you've enjoyed what we uh, what the collective has been doing the past year, and we hope you'll give us a call at 608-256-2001 or go online to wortfm.org. So that's today. As for tomorrow, that is the day that Anne will be discussing her book at the new East Side Room of One's Own in conversation with her longtime friend, Beth Miller. That's six o'clock on the back patio, 2717 Atwood Avenue. Back patio, back porch radio. You see how this all fits together, friends? Anne winkler Mori has a PhD in history from the University of Minnesota and taught history and ethnic studies at colleges and universities in the Twin Cities for three decades. In the 1980s, she was the director of the Central America Resource Center in Minneapolis. And in 2010, she was the instigator of the National Ethnic Studies Week. Her Minneapolis interview project includes 100 life stories with a social justice lens. I very much enjoyed the book and I'm happy to welcome her to Madison Bookbeat. Thank you so much. Was the motivation for this trip to find out something about America, to find out something about yourself as a way to heal your own personal traumas or just to get out of town? <laughs> All of the above, I think. Um, definitely an escape. You know, I had just gotten laid off. Um, and I got laid off from a job that um, in which I was I was crossing the urban rural divide on a daily basis, um, working, uh, commuting 75 miles up to St. Cloud State and thinking about issues of, uh, you know, the, the political divides, the urban rural divides and having this incredible opportunity to, you know, have a class uh, for 12 weeks and then having that taken away from me, you know, have those conversations with students. Um, and I, I, so I wanted to escape and I also wanted to continue to try to answer some questions that I had about what's real and what is not real in terms of the, uh, what, what we hear so much, even more, more about today, this, the political divide in the United States. You were bridging, examining those divides in 2011, 2012. Given the state of the political divides and, and the social and the political and the cultural and the safety issues today, mm -hmm. would you attempt an exercise like that, like this today? I have plans to do so. <laughs> the trip that I took was around the contiguous perimeter of the U.S. So we did, you know, all the border states. And I would like to, to do the, the internal states when I feel that the COVID you know, pandemic is is truly over. So, you know, I think that as I talk about in my epilogue, which was written in 2021, um, I think that while certainly the rise of Trump, we see that microphone got much, much louder, right, <laughs> of the right wing. But we also see the rise of these amazing intersectional social movements that the landscape in many ways is is a better landscape than the one that I that I traveled with across on my bicycle in 2011, 2012. So it's both. Um, and I think that one of the things that I learned is what divides us is often manufactured. A lot of it is manufactured. And if you talk to people about what's hurting them, that's, you know, what materially, truly <laughs> is uh, oppressing their lives. You know, we have those of us in the 99%, as people said in the, in 2011, 2012, I don't have, have an awful lot in common. 
Well, for example, you there's a woman who puts you up in Lakeland, Florida, who had a Rick Scott for governor bumper sticker, but also volunteer to feed uh, people who are doing the cleanup after Katrina. Mm -hmm. If you found out that not only was she supporting Rick Scott, but she was full bore. Magan was out there, you know, the 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 boat owners for Trump. Would you feel comfortable calling on her for hospitality again? Having spent um, the evening with her, I I would not be at all surprised if she had been a, and is <laughs> a Trump supporter. And um, I would feel comfortable talking to her because what I discovered from her is this incredible intense generosity. She spent her whole life, she lived in a very, very tiny place and was just dedicating her life to volunteer work um, of all kinds. And so I, I, you know, it would have been a real honor to, to go and talk to her and to try to figure out, you know, how, how that works for her in her brain, you know, to put those things together. And 70 million other people, right? <laughs> The title is adapted from a passage in the book Braiding Sweetgrass by the Potawatomi professor Robin Will Kimmerer that asks the question, what happens to nationalism, to political boundaries, when allegiance lies with winds and waters that know no boundaries that cannot be bought or sold? After 12,087 miles on your bike, another 3,600 miles by ferry and bus and train and car, meeting people in 32 states, the District of Columbia, and a couple of Canadian provinces, do you know the answer to that question? What I discovered that I did not know, because I grew up in many, many places and didn't have a really strong um, identity with local places, is that most people do have a very strong connection to local places that is not um, attached to nationalism. This kind of, you know, um, connection, whether it's to urban or rural, you know, it could be to a city. We met people who talked about really needing to be at the top of a mountain because they 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 needed to be able to see the sky, and other people who, you know, needed the forests and the prairies. Um, and that that attachment to place and the desire to share it, the desire to show you just how beautiful it is, I think is the antidote to nationalism. And it's also the, well, I was thinking this just this morning, um, it hedges against a kind of a problem with anti-imperialism, which I've spent lots of my life <laughs> um, being a part of movements that are anti-imperialist, but there's an aspect of those movements that that embrace uh, that embrace nationalism, that embrace borders, because there's you shouldn't be allowed to invade. And the idea of you know sort of radical hospitality, of loving a place and needing to share it, is sort of the next step, I think. And I saw it. I saw it, and I saw it from people you know across the the political divide. Did the experience affect in any way your sense of where you're from, that you're from Minnesota and what it, or you're from Madison and Minnesota in the Midwest or, or what it means to be a Midwesterner? Absolutely. And that's why I started my Minneapolis interview project after I got home. Um, that was the impetus for it. You know, I was like, what is it about this place that I, that I made my home when I was uh, 17? And came to, you know, what is it about the the Midwest, the upper Midwest that that I found myself yearning for, actually, when I was, you know, when I was on the trip. So I began to realize that I did have a sense of place that, you know, adopted place. Right. I, I, I believe the adage is there's no place like home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Would you have to first figure out where that home is? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How deep was the shadow between the idea of the trip and its reality? <laughs> uh, pretty big. Um, I, you know, I wasn't physically prepared. And I think it's important for people to know if they're interested in taking something like that, some kind of trip like that. I never, ever throughout the 420 days felt as though it, it never got easy. It never got physically easy. Okay, so it was always a challenge, um, but I was able to do it. 
Um, and that was kind of amazing. And um, but I do need to tell people that what I did is I left Minneapolis and started east, you know, not not yet ready to, you know, to bike the 70 miles I might need to. And I couldn't have done that going west from Minneapolis because very quickly you, you know, you enter, you enter the, you know, the prairie and you enter places that are where there are not places to stop the ability to, to take it slow and to, you know, work to train, train on the job, so to speak. And, and there were other things, you know, just in terms of my fear of strangers, um, my introvertedness, <laughs> there were lots of reasons why, you know, this was kind of a, um, um, one would not think that I was a perfect candidate for, for such a trip, but. You're introverted. People who are engaged in long distance bicycle trips seem to attract strangers who want to talk to them. Yes. Yes. And that was, that was the, you know, the magic of the loaded bike. Um, which I took total advantage of because then I didn't have to initiate conversations because people would just not only come right up to you, but have this urge to tell you uh, intimate things. But the, the other thing, in, in addition to that, is that I had the fact that I had been laid off. And so when I started the conversation with, you know, the question was, you know, why are you doing this? And I would start with, or how could you do this, you know? How could you leave your job? And I'd say, well, I was laid off. And you kind of see people's shoulders relax. And whether, you know, whether they were laid off or overworked or just got divorced or whatever it was that was uh, oppressing them at the moment, they felt like you just told them, you know, uh, that you're vulnerable and so that they could share, they could uh, return the favor and tell you things. You're automatically a sympathetic figure. Yes, yes. We're talking with Ann Winkler-Mori about her book, Allegiance to Winds and Waters, Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States. As I noted at the top, we are in the second week of the fall pledge drive, so I need to take a short break so you can hear from our friend David Marinus. He was on the show a few weeks ago to discuss his magnificent new biography of Jim Thorpe, path lit by lightning, and I took the opportunity to ask what community radio means to him. Well, I love radio, first of all, and when I'm listening to the radio, I listen to one of three things, either a baseball game, classical music, or community radio, where I can find it, um, and they all offer something that no, nothing else can, uh, and community radio offers a, a sensibility of a community a real depth of an understanding of that place and the, it's, you know, both the music and the conversations of a place that, that I, that I really admire. Um, so, you know, community radio, if I can tap into it, I will wherever I am. And as you come back to, as you have been coming back to Madison over the years, since you moved away, what's your sense of the role that WRT in particular plays in the Madison community and the Madison community media landscape? Well, 89.9 is right on my dial. <laughs> so, uh, um, I mean, I was just listening to an interview this morning, driving back from Milwaukee. Um, and I can't even remember what it was, but I turned to Linda and said, this is a really good interviewer. <laughs> it captured my imagination. Oh, it was about the nurses strike or whether they will strike, the UW health nurses. And I just thought it was it was something that no 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 place else would do, right? And and it captured all of that, um, you know, both the the uh, the nurse who was the spokesperson and the questioner, in a very subtle, nuanced, and and insightful way. Um, and I find that often to be the case with, you know, whoever that interviewer was, and you and all the others. So, would you encourage the listeners to continue to support? WRT radio. <laughs> well, you're not going to make it without that support. So absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, David. I could not have said it better myself. That's 608-256-2001 or WORTFM.org. And what is it we do with the support you provide? 
Well, we've recently made two big improvements to our physical plant. News and Public Affairs Director Shally Pittman has undertaken a complete remodeling of the newsroom, making it a healthier, more productive, and more attractive workspace, with plenty of wall space to hang all the awards the Wart News and Public Affairs team continues to rack up. And digital content producer Aaron Schultz has taken a messy storage space and turned it into a recording studio. And with your continued support, we'll continue to make improvements. We'll finally get the new soundboards that we so desperately need. We'll get new microphones. We'll accelerate the program of digitizing decades of Wart archives. Because I do believe there is audio gold in them, thar archives. You know, I mentioned a moment ago all the awards Shally's team continues to win. I tell you, it's really fun to go head-to-head with radio stations from around the state and come home with the hardware. And to do it with volunteers, like so much of what is done around the station. Now just think about this, friends. Keeping a full-time, full-service radio station on the air 24-7 with just seven full-time staff and a few part-timers. All the voices you hear on the air, all the engineers, all the receptionists, all of them volunteers. What a testament that is to this community, that there are so many talented and dedicated people giving their time and energy so that this great hope of Madison Media, radio of the people, radio by the people, radio for the people, shall not perish from your dial. And all we ask of you is that Every once in a while, you give us a little financial support to the extent you are able. And the easiest way to do that is by giving us a call at 608-256-2001 or going online at wortfm.org. And the absolutely easiest way to do it is by becoming an evergreen donor, where you set the figure, anything over $5, for a monthly deduction from your account. It's a big help to our budgeting, and if we increase the percentage of donors who are evergreen, we can actually reduce the number of days we pledge wrap. That, friends, is what they call a win-win. So give us a call. We'll give you the rest of the details. Now back to our conversation with Ann Winkler-Mori about her book, Allegiance to Winds and Waters, Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States. What do you wish you had known before you started this trip? I don't know if it's something that I wish I had known because um, I really enjoyed um, getting in touch with my ignorance. (laughs) (laughs) Truly, you know, realizing how much about the world and about every place that I was into that I didn't know. I didn't know what phosphate was or anything about timber. I just wish I had known that I was actually going to finish and write a book and that I had taken better notes. That's the biggest, you know, I, sometimes people will say, well, you know, what did the place look like? What did, how did it smell? How did it? And I'm like, well, I was, I've got what I've written down and I, this is a true story, not something that I get to elaborate on. So that's, that was the big, the big frustration is, you tried doing some tape recorded interviews, but realized that was not a practical way to proceed. Yeah, yeah. And and actually most of the most incredible conversations were serendipity. They weren't prepared. They weren't, you know, they were people that people we met because we got lost, people who invited us to their home, people, you know, people we met on the road you know, allowing those those conversations to just happen and then getting somewhere as quickly as possible to to write down what happened is the method I used. Are there things you're glad you didn't know before you started the trip? Hmm. Well, I think I didn't I didn't know how hard it was going to be. But really, I mean it, you know, I almost quit every single day. I think if I actually had that feeling in my body before I left of of, of all of the uh, all of the difficulties, I I would not have <laughs> not have gotten on the bicycle. So I'm glad I did. And what what's the most important piece of advice you would give to somebody planning a long, long, long distance trip like this? 
go easy on the planning because your plans are going to be destroyed. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead and plan, go ahead and get some maps and make some, but the, the nature of, of a bicycle trip and all of the aspects of, you know, of weather and, and the people you meet. And there, there are just so many different variables that plan and plan and plan and everything is going to, everything's going to change. <laughs> we had this basic plan of trying to stay on the bike um, through, through the winter and through the summer. You had to be, had to be in the north um, in the summer and the south in the winter. And beyond that, everything else was, things change. Well, there were 143 households who put you up during the trip. Some of them were spontaneously. Most seemed prearranged. What was involved in building that network to have those accommodations and to know that, well, we may be there on Tuesday. We may not get there till Thursday. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that was, you know, we really stretched our uh, the hospitality of people by showing up late always. Um showing up several days late uh, sometimes. You know, we used the Warm Showers, which is a bicycle network. We used an uh, international friendship network. And we also just used our friends like crazy to ask them to ask their friends and their friends of friends, um, family of family. So lots of people that, that we didn't know, but they knew somebody that we knew um, that we could stay with. And lots of strangers on the road, too. Like in Maine, it was it was people we didn't know every day, every time, five days in in a row. So, have have you maintained contact with any of these uh, trail angels? Some of them, yes, and some of them I'm still trying to get a connection with. There's a a woman in Del Rio, Texas, who lives not far from Uvalde, Texas, where you know we saw this massacre in the schools happened recently. And I'm very grateful to be in connection with her. She met us in a donut shop and shepherded us to the border so we could go walk into Mexico in Del Rio, Texas. So there are some connections that are really, really fantastic like that. Um, you mentioned, you told me um, before that you have uh, a sister who lives in Carmel, New York, and the supreme trail angels who saved us there, I do not have connection with and hope to still try to still try to find. So uh, you just mentioned donuts. You're, <laughs> you're vegetarians, and there were times when people put big heaping yeah. <laughs> plates of meat in front of you. Right. How how did this trip affect your your diet and your eating and, and how how much difficulty did diet and, and food issues present? It it was very difficult. I, I learned several things. First of all, I we never um did not accept the food that people provided us because most of the time it was, you know, the very best that people <laughs> Um, felt they could offer us and it was given with such, you know, with such love. And um, there was ham three days in a row, which I, you know, I'm not a really observant Jew, but um, I grew up not eating ham as well as not eating meat as an adult. So, but I ate it. Um, you know, I discovered that food really is extremely uh, personal and what we define as as eating is just so so different in different in different places and different among different people. What's a treat? What's the best the best thing to eat? You know, sometimes it it did you know make me physically sick and that was that was difficult. And the other thing is that there are food deserts. You know, in places where we where we weren't being you know weren't staying with people. Rural areas, you know, without grocery stores, lots of eating, lots of eating out of gas stations, lots and lots of eating out of gas stations, which was, we, you know, there's an art to it. Um, you find the nut section <laughs> uh, was frustrating. And it's frustrating as, you know, to think about it on a, on a kind of global, global level, what, 
our food system and the way in which uh, you know, you can be in a place that is, you know, that grows, that has the best soil and grows, can grow the most food and, and there's nothing to eat. And that's pretty amazing. How did your physical condition at the end compare to your condition, fitness, strength, weight, so on at the beginning? Well, I didn't lose any weight and I started as, you know, started overweight <laughs> when I began. And um, that was kind of amazing because the, I had this assumption um, that that would happen. And ate less and less as as the trip went on. Um, found that you know that you know at the beginning was kind of voracious appetite, but um, my body just got used to that kind of level of activity, and I ate pretty much normal amounts of food toward the end. Um, I mean, I got very strong. One of the, the things I was concerned about is upper body strength, thinking that I might might not get that. And I had to lift my bicycle many times of, of the day. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I felt was quite was quite strong by the end of it. And mentally as well. <laughs> well, um, I think. The lasting thing is this sort of feeling of being comfortable in, uh, and and able to make myself at home um, anywhere. You know, with the COVID, the pandemic, I've there's a little bit of backsliding because I spent so much time, you know, just with me and my spouse. But this ability to to sort of say right here, right where I am now, I'm. I deserve to be here and I'm going to be safe and those kinds of things. That was a, a lasting. And then I'm actually, you know, as somebody who's, who is a um, an assault survivor to realize that I'm actually safer around other people, you know, not um, that was, that was a revela revelation and that, that continues. That was pretty powerful. We're talking with Ann Winkler Morey about her book, Allegiance to Winds and Waters, Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States. Well, what do you know? Here are three more of our recent guests here to do just a little pledge wrapping. This is Doug Moe. I'm a longtime journalist and author of Madison and a passionate fan of community radio in general and Ward in particular. I was recent, recently on Steve Levitan's terrific program, Madison Bookbeat, talking about my new biography of Kit Saunders Nordine. Title IX, and the Rise of Women's Intercollegiate Athletics. Stu does a great service by focusing on books with a strong local connection. There's little book coverage in commercial media these days. I couldn't get the newspaper where I wrote a daily column for nearly a decade to even mention my book. To mask this publication, I will identify it only as the Wisconsin State Journal. Of course, Stu's is only one of many wonderful shows on WORT. Some of us have been listening to Bill Malone's Back to the Country for more than two decades now. I once wrote that having Bill Malone doing a community radio show is like having Meryl Streep do community theater. But Bill, who was Ken Burns' historian in Burns' country music documentary, loves WORT. He just enjoys it so much, he still does a regular gig after moving to Texas. I hope you'll please join me in helping support WORT by calling 608-256-2001 in making a donation. Thank you. Hi, this is Kim Oakland, and I'm calling to say how grateful I am to WORT and Stu Levitin with Madison Bookbeat for having me on uh, in late May to talk about my historical fiction novel, The War on All Fronts some of which is set in Madison, Wisconsin. Stations like WORT and shows like Stu's bring attention to stories, books, and people you don't find anywhere else. It's not easy for an author without a huge following to get exposure, but WORT and Stu took a chance on me, and I thank them for that. In an effort to continue WORT's necessary work and support, and to support its shows, please call 608-256-2001 to make a pledge or visit WORTFM.org. Thank you to WORT's listeners and to Stu. Have a good day. Hello, my name is Patrick McBride, and I'm calling to say that I'm a longtime WORT listener and a big supporter of Madison Bookbeat. Independent radio is so important to have in in the world right now, but especially in Madison, we get 
great programming that we don't get in commercial media these days about our world, our politics, about important books and other information we just wouldn't get. I was privileged to be on Madison Bookbeat to talk about my most recent book called The Luckiest Boy in the World. And local authors like me don't get that opportunity except in places like WRT. So I encourage you to uh, make a pledge during these two weeks to go online at wrtfm.org or to call into the station and make a pledge like I do every year to support this important independent radio. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doug, Kim, and Pat. Yes, that is the concept behind Madison Bookbeat, to focus on local authors, local publishers, books of local interest, and authors coming to town. Authors like Madison native Ann Winkler-Mori, who will be at A Room of One's Own tomorrow night, that's Tuesday at 6. We hope you appreciate what we've been doing here this year and what everybody else at the station has been doing, and will indeed give us a call at 608-256-2001, or go online to wortfm.org. Now back to our conversation with Anne. What were two or three of the best moments on the trip? Interesting to define that. I think in Florida, in Western Florida, I had the opportunity to to see a part of that state that, um, that if you visit, you probably don't see which is the inner, away from the coast, you know, away from the tourist areas, where it's basically a plantation economy uh, and a very racially divided plantation economy. So this sounds like, why am I saying this is the best part of the the trip? I just just learned so much from that experience. Um, And it it gave me a, a, a new perspective on the on the rest of the country, which was also, you know, very similar, but just the the intensity of the divides of the of the wealth divide in Florida was illuminating. And in terms of just having a a fantastic evening and thinking about the power of community, including things like community radio, we had this night in Middleville, Michigan, where we had been you know, really battling with the, we've been getting lost in Michigan and we've been battling with the, um, the lack of uh, infrastructure um, that state had really been not, not uh, fixing its roads and that was affecting our experience. And we rode into Middleville, Michigan, um, which had a little piece of this, um, of a national uh, path that goes um, from New York all the way to, uh, I think all the way to the West, West Coast. They had paved three miles of it into town. And we discovered, we, we ended up sleeping right at the edge of it because we weren't able to find a place, a place to stay. And um, we were very welcomed there, you know, making a makeshift camp site. Um, but we also were able to observe the power of, you know, a paved bike path, um, the power of, of community spaces. And that kind of became, you know, that was early in the trip. And that became something that I really observed um, throughout the trip that um, when communities, you know, um, pool their resources um, you know, not, not only are we safer when we're around people, but we're also safer when when communities, when we're in communities that invest in themselves, that invest in their in their um, in their common in their commons, right? And what they hold to get in, in common, and that includes things like community radio. It includes things like bike paths. It includes things like parks and uh, park shelters and libraries. Um, which we used like crazy, right? You know, because because um, we were basically without a home, right? And um, we come into communities and and use every single public resource that they had available. That was on my mind all the time. The power of those things. 
and in places that instead invested in tourism, um, you know, and we were the tourist, um, but um, those places were much less hospitable. So, because they didn't have the free resources that, and, and because they didn't invest in what the people the people there needed, and so for some for for several, I mean, obviously, so for us, we we needed the we needed the shelter with the picnic table, you know, we needed. Um, the public bathroom, we needed the library to be open, those kinds of things. But in terms of just enjoying the uniqueness of a place, um, if the focus is on tourism, you end up having, you know, the big, the big hotels and the big, you know, and the place looks like every other place and is available to you know, people who come in with lots of money. And that's, and it isn't, and so you see more people who are you know, who are struggling and who aren't being cared for in the community. And that's not pleasant to, to, as a, as somebody coming into a community. And what were two or three of the worst moments of the trip? Uh, Northern Virginia, um, which is uh, in terms of the public space, that public space is, is primarily uh, military bases. There's three or four of them in a row. Um, they had actually been, the military bases had actually been open to uh, to bicyclists, but they closed it in, in 2001 and then didn't, bicycle maps we had didn't inform us of that. So we had to, to ride around those and we had to ride on a very narrow truckway that, uh, that was named after the head of the Confederacy, um, sort of layers and layers of, uh, discomfort there and and we did we did nearly quit at that point because of the danger of of it or the, the discomfort because there are a number of instances where you describe being on highways or being in areas that it seemed it was pretty fraught with yeah. potential for disaster yeah yeah so it was it was the it was the the layers of things so we have the 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 danger of the truck and not being able to find a way you know, another, another byway. But we also had the just the the introduction of sort of Confederate nostalgia, um, crossing the Mason-Dixon line, and the military bases, which was the use of public space, right? Those are public spaces. Um, and having those be the focus of, of our, you know, of our common resources be on, on the military, and on museums focused on Confederate nostalgia and that and the like. Well, at least I think they're starting to take the Confederate generals' names off of them, so we're not going to have Absolutely. some of those forts Absolutely. anymore. Yes, and and that is that is as a as a result of the social movements of the last ten years, which is why I, you know, going back to your first question, which is why I sort of push back at the idea that things are. Things are so much worse than they were ten years ago because they're so much better, also, <laughs> as a result of of the way people have been struggling. Did writing about the experience help you process it? Oh, absolutely, yes, yeah. And I took ten years because <laughs> I needed that. You know, I needed to learn how to write, and I needed to to figure out. I had I had um, seven hundred pages of you know, of notes. So I had to figure out how to get it down to something that was readable. Um, and I had to, you know, the, my notes didn't really talk about what I was thinking. So I had to really focus on that. And the writing, the writing made that made that possible. Yep. Writing is a very powerful, whether it's journaling or you know, for other people, it's a very powerful tool for figuring out what you think. I've always found your husband David process the experience differently than you did. Yes, he did. It would be a different book if he <laughs> his his book would be different. Yeah, there you you write very candidly about some rough some rough moments and some harsh thoughts that you had with and about David. Did this experience change your relationship in any lasting way? Well, look, we spent 24 hours a day together um, 
for 420 days. <laughs> but who's um, counting? <laughs> but who's counting? Yeah. No, but um, and we we were one machine, you know, we couldn't we couldn't have done it. We we really, you know, we sort of combined our deficits and <laughs> and, and rolled on. Um, and with the pandemic, we did kind of the same thing. I mean, not moving anywhere, but spending 24 hours he he retired and we've been spending that time together and and we do well when we're together so i guess that's that's as good as it gets yeah. I, uh, I can barely spend 24 hours a day with myself uh-huh. <laughs> well, i think you could spend it with somebody thing. else no. for 422 days is, yeah. is impressive yeah. Yeah. We're talking with Ann Winkler Mori about her book Allegiance to Winds and Waters: Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States. Well, isn't this nice? Two more of our recent guests with testimonials of their own. Isn't that just the way with community radio? Hey, WORT Radio. This is Patty Lowe calling in from Chicago. I was a long-time listener when I lived in Madison, and now with plans to move back, I know I'll be listening again. I do tune in from time to time online here in Chicago, but I was visiting my mom a couple of days ago and drove past the WORT studios, and I was feeling nostalgic enough to make a pledge. I know how important that is to community-supported radio. A special shout-out to Stu Levitan. I enjoyed our conversation about my book, Indian Nations of Wisconsin, on Madison Book Beats. I made my pledge. I encourage anyone listening to do the same. Madison is a wonderful town, and WORT is one of the reasons why. Peace out. (laughs) I've always wanted to say that. Bye. Hello, this is Jim Birkenstadt, also known as the rock and roll detective and a local author in Madison, Wisconsin. You know, WORT is a very special jewel in our community, It is non-commercial, community-based radio. Non-commercial media like WORT is not beholden to big corporate ad sponsors. I have enjoyed appearing on Stu Levitan's WORT program, Madison Bookbeat, most recently to discuss my bestseller, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. No other outlet has a radio host who knows history, reads the books, and asks the penetrating questions on air in Madison like Stu Levitan. I hope you will join me by calling 608-256-2001 or go online to wortfm.org to make a pledge and every dollar goes to support this wonderful Madison jewel W-O-R-T-F-M Community Radio. Thank you. Patty Lowe, the award-winning broadcaster for Wisconsin Public Television and WKOW, now a professor at Northwestern University, about to retire and move back to Madison, and Madison's own Jim Birkenstadt. Two more examples of why your community radio station and only your community radio station presents a weekly show focusing on community writers, because this community has so many of them, and we want to let you know about them, because we are all about community, which is why I hope and do believe that members of the listening community will give us a call at 608-256-2001 or go online at wrtfm.org to make that donation or pledge. And if you do, and that donation or pledge is at least $45, not only do you continue to enjoy a vibrant and growing WORT and get a great thank you gift, but you become a listener sponsor and are eligible to run for the board of directors. I'm, i got to tell you, having served on the board for several years now, this has been a very enjoyable and rewarding experience. Longtime listeners may recall that in our 47 years, there have been difficult and stressful times, whether over programming or financing or interpersonal relations. And frankly, there were some times in the 1980s when it looked like we might not survive. But we did. Thanks to you, the community. Now, it's no longer a question of whether we'll survive. That's a given. 
But we don't want to merely survive. We want to thrive. And that means we have to invest to finally get the new soundboards, to get the new microphones and the other equipment and technology that we, so that we can expand our reach and get new listeners. That's where you come in. Please give us a call, 608-256-2001. Go online to wortfm.org. As I say, we've got great thank you gifts ranging from a subscription to the Progressive Magazine to the Fab Wart Retro Airline Bag to Glow in the Dark Wart Baseball Cap to a really sharp new hoodie in black, red, and purple with that groovy new Wart bumper sticker design on the front. Please, you hear from us throughout the year. Now is one of the times we need to hear from you. If not you, who? If not now, when? Now back to our conversation with Ann Winkler-Mori about her book, Allegiance to Winds and Waters, Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States. How did the experience change you? Uh, how did it change me? Um, well, it, it changed my ability to talk to, to strangers. Um, it changed, I, I, you know, I, I tend to be a pretty, uh, pessimistic person. And I write about that in the, in the book. Um, um, my husband is very optimistic, my, my biking partner. Um, and, um, I think I got sort of a lasting feeling of the possibility of social change from the trip that that hasn't gone away. Did it affect your sense of your interior sense as well, or just your sense of what was possible in the rest of the outside world? Well, I worry less about my own safety. It's not that I feel more safe. It's that it just doesn't, it, it isn't the thing, it isn't the, it isn't what motivates uh, what I do, you know, worrying about my safety, right? Um, you know, things happen or they don't happen. Um, but it's really important to get out there and to experience things. And that, that's, um, that's pretty profound, I think. How often do you stop and go, whoa, wait a minute. I bicycled 12,000 miles. <laughs> yeah. Does this, does this amaze you? I mean, when you stop and think about what you did, you just go, did I really do that? Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I, I feel like um, it was, it was more amazing than I could write about in the book. <laughs> and that especially, you know, given, given my abilities, um, I've joined all these different bicycle groups, wanting to tell them about my about my book, and I'm in touch with all these women my age who are amazing athletes, and and um, you know the kind of the kind of person I might like to be, but I am not. Um, and so uh, I am sort of constantly amazed. <laughs> How did I do that? <laughs> you know? So. And you've got another long distance trip planned or just in, in the formative stages? Yeah. I, um, you know, the, the interstates, it's the reason we did the continuous borders is, is about, was about uh, weather. And so the interstates is a, is a trickier thing in terms of, um, I don't think we could do it in one, in one trip. I think we need to focus on spring and fall and maybe do it in several trips. So we haven't figured that out. Um, well, I think you've only got 18 states to go. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're probably sure. not going to get to Hawaii and Alaska. So let's, let's call right. it 16. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, but they're kind of big, you know, <laughs> take up a lot of space. And um, as, as the woman in uh, librarian in New York said, they're landlocked. So as you, rode those last miles into Minneapolis and walked those last few blocks to your house, what emotions were going through your head and heart? Well, it was a combination of things. I did not feel at that moment as though I had um, 
you know, I'd figured everything out. In fact, I was going back to unemployment at that moment. That was part of why I was walking slowly. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> um, you know, my spouse knew exactly what he was going to do on Monday. This was, this was Sunday, and he was going back to work the very next day. Um, and I was um, trying to figure out, you know, what what my next step was. And I did I did start teaching again very soon afterwards, but I didn't know that at that time. So I was not real eager to be home, <laughs> but I was was eager to start trying to write. So that was that was the one thing that that was the one task I had in front of me. Well, we're we're glad you did, and even though it took you a while to <laughs> to, to get it all down and to get it down to a manageable length, it's it's a really interesting and enlightening book, and it describes something that I am never going to do. So I appreciate <laughs> being able to experience it vicariously. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Ann Winkler Mori. Again, the book is Allegiance to Winds and Waters: Bicycling the Political Divides of the United States from the Good People at Wise Inc. Publishing and winklermori.com for more information. And a reminder that Anne will be on the back patio at A Room of One's Own Tuesday evening at 6 in conversation with her old friend Beth Miller, that new east side address, 2717 Atwood Avenue. Thanks to everyone who made a donation or pledge during the show today, because Monday is Rosh Hashanah. We've taped this conversation on Saturday, so I don't know who you all are, but I do thank you very much. And George Dreckman will thank you by name when he hosts on Monday. I will do the same when I return on October 24th. And by the way, George's guest will be Mary Wimmer discussing her novel about Wisconsin cheese making, The Art of the Break. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Mass and Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us, and thank you very much for supporting Independent Community Radio. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Walding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM Madison, listener-sponsored community radio.